Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode five of our prep school bracket. There's a lot of Oscar bait in this bracket. Yeah, particularly this week, where we have Mona Lisa Smile from 2003, as well as The Emperor's Club from 2002. Both of which are dead poet society-ing, but to varying degrees of success. It's not like they are completely rehashing the plot of Dead Poet Society, but they are about inspiring teachers who have complications with administration. I mean, it's a tale as old as time. But I would definitely much prefer that sort of story than the numerous teen sex comedies that we ran across when constructing the bracket. That's true. That's true. Surely there must be some Oscar-bait teen sex comedies. I guess call them by your name. There is a teen in there and a 29-year-old. Usually in those, someone's either gay or has cancer. Right, or both. They have gay cancer. God damn it. Here to help. So anyway, Mona Lisa Smile. Sure, let's go ahead and start there. In 1953, Catherine Watson takes an art history teaching position at Wellesley College, a conservative all-girls liberal arts college in Massachusetts. She is unprepared for the school culture, preventing male visitors for students and faculty living on campus, as well as her students having memorized the entire text and syllabus by the first class. Undeterred, Catherine presses on, finding outside lodging for herself with other faculty, and completely adjusting her curriculum to focus on what is art, what makes it good or bad, and who decides. Catherine also inspires her students to achieve more than being a housewife, although one particularly conservative student, Betty Warren, is appalled by this. Betty fights back against this subversive attitude with op-eds in the school paper, one exposing the school nurse for supplying birth control pills, leading to her termination, and others attacking Catherine's teaching directly. As the school year goes on, both of them have struggles. Betty with her crusade against Catherine and falling out with other students, and a failing marriage with her husband having an affair and her mother refusing to help, only encouraging her to give it time. Catherine, meanwhile, chafes against the administration and Betty, while also having a pair of failed romantic relationships, one with her boyfriend in California and one with a college Italian professor. As the class is graduating, Betty has had a change of heart, filing for divorce and applying to Yale Law School. She also pens a final op-ed praising Catherine for the way she inspired her students. Meanwhile, rather than return to teach next year with a long list of conditions from the school board, Catherine instead decides to leave and explore Europe. And there are a few other subplots slash plotlines in here with uh, the other students, but while they are interesting and compelling, they're not strictly vital to understand. Yeah, this one was a little bit difficult to summarize because the film is so character-driven rather than plot-driven. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just focused on the main complication, which is this antagonism between Catherine and Betty. Mm-hmm. That's the backbone. Mm-hmm. The other characters are sort of the ribs. Yeah. Other characters, we have Joan, who is a very dedicated, kind of overachieving student with a longtime boyfriend as the film begins. And then by the end, uh, marries him. And Catherine is encouraging her to pursue law school in addition to becoming a housewife. And there's some back and forth. Joan eventually decides not to do that. And when Catherine confronts her and is kind of disappointed, Joan calls her out. It's like, you stand in class and tell us to look beyond the image, but you don't. To you, a housewife is someone who sold her soul for a center hall colonial. She has no depth, no intellect, no interests. You're the one who said I could do anything I wanted. This is what I want. Which I really, really appreciate. It's, I thought this movie was going to go in a feminism is not having a man kind of direction, and I'm glad that it pushed back against that. 
other major characters, we have Giselle. Who, Giselle. Giselle is the best girl, who is kind of subversive in her own right. She's raised by a single mother and is Jewish and so doesn't quite fit in with a lot of the other girls at the school and has a um, reputation about her. She's the sexy one. But she kind of immediately takes to Professor Watson and is really interested in the material and kind of immediately gets where she's coming from and encouraging the students to look for more because Giselle was kind of already there anyway. Mm -hmm. And then we also have Connie as a character who is a little bit more shy. She begins the film kind of lamenting that she doesn't really have a serious boyfriend. And as the film goes on, she gets set up with Betty's cousin. They hit it off. They keep seeing each other. And then Betty sort of sabotages that relationship. It's really shitty and mean. Mm -hmm. Why are you like this? There's an element of, if I can't be happy, no one can. Yeah, that's kind of how Betty operates through a good chunk of the second half of the film. Mm-hmm. I like Honey a lot. She's kind of abrasive. Like, there's an awkwardness to her that doesn't feel forced and writery. It just feels like it's coming from both the actress and the script work in harmony to make her a character who doesn't fit in, but in a nuanced way. Mm-hmm. Honestly, a lot of the acting here is really good, and we shouldn't be surprised this cast is full of very talented actresses. Pretty much the who's who of young Hollywood at the time. Mm-hmm. We have Julia Roberts here starring as uh, Catherine Watson. Kirsten Dunst as Betty Warren. She was filming this right in between Spider-Man 1 and Spider-Man 2. <laughs> Julia Stiles as Joan Branwyn. You may recognize her from 10 Things I Hate About You. She's the main character. Maggie Gyllenhaal plays Giselle and she's fantastic here. And then we have Jennifer Goodwin as Connie Baker. You might recognize her as Snow White from Once Upon a Time or as What's-Her-Bucket, the main rabbit from Zootopia. I was excited. This is long before she threw a baby into a death pit. <laughs> Gotta love Once Upon a Time. There's also some really interesting like background characters. In a number of shots in the classroom, you can see a very young Kristen Ritter here just as a background extra. She's like a foot taller than everybody else, but also has a foot less hair than everybody else. And so she feels like she just walked into the set and no one told her to leave. Yeah, she doesn't even have any lines. <laughs> there anybody else like the cast is like super memorable? I can't remember. Um, I really like Topher Grace in this. Oh yeah, Topher Grace is here. Yeah, Topher Grace plays Joan's boyfriend, Tommy. And he's mostly a good egg. There is... I'm not quite sure how to read his reaction to all of the Yale stuff with Joan. He seems very casually dismissive. He specifically says, Just the fact that she got in. I mean, she will always have that. Thanks to you. Miss Watson, you've been real swell to her. We both appreciate it. But that's before we, the audience, know that Joan doesn't decide to go and winds up staying. And I don't know how much of that decision was made before or after that comment. Uh, He's definitely pretty encouraging and supportive for a man during this time period, at least what we would expect. And he does seem like he genuinely loves her, even if the way he loves her is maybe not as focused on career and ambitions. But also, if she's not that focused on career and ambitions, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Very often, Joan and Tommy are kind of played as a foil to Betty and Spencer and showing what a loving relationship that works looks like compared to one that does not. Mm -hmm. In fact, The first time we really get a sense of Spencer is when Joan and Tommy are visiting 
Betty and Spencer just after the latter have gotten married. And they're having dinner together, and then all of a sudden, Spencer... I just got a call. They need me in New York tomorrow. Joe and Tommy are here. Can't you leave in the morning? Then I'd miss the meeting. Sorry, you guys. We take a rain check? And leaves. And we can see these almost knowing glances from Joan and Tommy. Something's going on. They never bring it up to Betty, and I'm not sure if that's just, like, waspy, this is not stuff we talk about, or whether they're just, something's up, but they're not quite sure what. I think a little column A, a little column B. Also, maybe an element of, like, they can tell something's up, but they're not really sure how to bring it up. I think it, they probably genuinely do not have the social technology to say, hey, this marriage is a sham. Connie could have. I'm pretty sure Connie, if she was there, could have just been like, you're faking all of this. This is all lies. Giselle definitely could have. Oh, God, Giselle. But is, but is too good of a person to do so. Okay, so I'm getting ahead of ourselves. This is honestly kind of the linchpin of the movie to me, but there's a bit when Betty comes in towards the climax, frothing at the mouth, being shitty to everybody with all of her facade down, and we really thought that somebody was going to slap her, but instead Giselle hugs her and lets her cry it out and kind of move from anger to tears, which was a, a lot more healthy than what we kind of thought was going to happen. And I'm really glad of that. That was a mm. very good choice. It was probably more healthy than what might have gone on. Yeah, and it starts off with Betty criticizing Giselle for her romantic pursuits. She's slept with the Italian professor and is currently seeing a married man. Mm-hmm. Like two or three times her age. Is it Jack Nicholson movie? <laughs> And we see her out on a date, the scene before, and she sees Spencer with the other woman. And so Betty comes in, is criticizing her, calling her a number of slut-shaming nouns that I won't repeat here. And she just keeps going at it, and Giselle starts walking away. And then Giselle realizes that Betty's not criticizing her. She's just found out what's going on, and this is the only way that she can process it. And so Giselle turns back and just hugs her as Betty cries. It's so sweet and heartwarming, and it's so necessary because it means that Betty doesn't have to stay a villain. She could still start to sort herself out. You get the sense that she's probably got a long way to go still, but she's on the path now towards being like whole and happy, maybe. Yeah. And the depth of that friendship goes on to after Betty files for divorce, she and Giselle are going to be roommates while she's going to Yale Law. Oh my god, they were roommates. <laughs> and I will say that given that Giselle has definitely made some casual advances on some of the other girls, and also this movie sets up a character having a roommate early in the film who's her companion. You know, companion. Who died before the film started. I don't know how we're supposed to read that. I think there's an element of ambiguity there that I can choose to believe in. Mm-hmm. That relationship is definitely ambiguous but amanda and her late partner are as close as they could have gotten using the terminology of the day to being a lesbian couple Mm -hmm. and the movie while it doesn't directly say it definitely makes it very obvious like it makes it very clear and the audience isn't like left unsure what's happening there and i really appreciate that i think that was a good nuanced way to handle what that's like and how you kind of had to tiptoe around that. But also lets us know that that Nancy, the landlady for all these people, is accepting in her own way. Even though she believes in like decorum and proper marriage and all this jazz, she still understands and loves Amanda for who she is and understands that she's going through real pain. 
I think that's one disappointment that I had with the film is that Nancy doesn't really get to blossom. There's the groundwork laid there for it as we find out what happened with Lenny. <laughs> so she talks about having a partner, but that he died. Then she gets drunk at a wedding and we find out that Lenny didn't die. He just already had a wife and kids. That poor bartender must have listened to all of this. And you, you don't look a thing like him. You ugly bartender. Stop it, Nancy. You couldn't shine his shoes. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to turn out like this. It wasn't supposed to turn out like this. I know. And it makes a lot of sense why Nancy is the way that she is based on that. And then later on in the film, as Catherine is figuring out what she wants to do, she has officially been offered the job, but she hasn't quite figured out whether she's going to take it or not. Her and Nancy have a moment and... You're right. Let's celebrate. <laughs> Let's go upstairs and get gussied up and go out dancing. Silly. It's after eight o'clock. Strike it rich is on. Oh, life isn't about strike it rich. It's a school night. So what? So I don't want to go. I'm happy here. And I really wish we got a scene, or even with that scene, Catherine was able to just kind of convince Nancy to come out of her shell and look for love again. Mm. Or at least not be lonely. I think that she doesn't certainly need to have a romantic partner. It'd be nice that she deserves one all the jazz, but um, she... She doesn't need one, but she very obviously wants one. Right. I mean, like from a writing narrative standpoint, she doesn't certainly need one to be a whole person or anything, but she definitely needs companionship. I would be happier if I knew for sure that she would at least have some sort of a social scene afterwards, because mm -hmm. with Catherine and Amanda both gone, then she kind of is going to be alone in that house, which seems like not good for her. Yeah. And while she's generally a pretty comical character, she also kind of shows the dark underside of this culture of expectations. Um, this is where she talks about how it wasn't supposed to turn out like this, that there isn't really a path for women of her age in this culture to have love and marriage and all that jazz that she wants because she's past the departure point for these things. There's this sad cruelty to her teaching all of these women how to properly prepare to have husbands. Ah, the marriage RPG. <laughs> We don't have context for it when it happens, but looking back on that scene now, it's so incredibly sad. She's trying really hard to maintain this facade. Maybe not even facade. She's trying really hard to maintain the, the sense of the rightness of the decorum of their society that clearly has failed her. Mm -hmm. And it's tragic and heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I want better things for her. I just really love this culture clash and, and driving the plot because it leads to so many interesting interactions because of the ensemble cast we get to see a number of different people navigating it and figuring out what exactly they want right and the film doesn't strictly come down on there being one right answer it allows for different options and possibilities without setting one up as the right one mm -hmm. it's more like being true to yourself is more important than picking any particular path which good message mm. very minor thing but during some of the classes we have the slide projector happening and as Catherine gets more angry the sound of the slide projector gets louder and it's a very harsh sharp sound like a, a guillotine it's very like abrasive and mechanical and it sounds really cool and, and dramatic and it's probably you know, probably louder than it actually would be in the classroom but it still sets up this oral intensity that i really enjoy mm -hmm. There's also this one scene, uh, it's the class immediately after Betty publishes a especially scathing op-ed. One of her students tries to make a comment, and, and she says, Quiet. 
Today you just listen. And as the projector goes on, most of her face is cut off to a black portion of the slide, but her eyes are lit up and it's just very stark and you can see the anger and frustration she has with the culture, with Betty, with her kind of students in general for they enjoy the class and what they're getting out of it, but they're also not quite willing to stand up for her and how she teaches. Right. And in the background behind her, you have this Happy Housewife ad and it's flat, black and white and fake, whereas she, a living woman, is in color and real and has actual emotions. And it's a very good juxtaposition. Yeah. That whole scene is short, but it all is punctuating. This, this is how the world sees you. This is what modern art says about women in our culture. Do you really want to keep promoting that? Do you really want to be a part of that? You can be so much more. This film has a lot to say about modern art, well, modern designs, the 50s, whatever. And I, I really liked it. And I think as people who both took art history classes wanted to spend even more time in that space. Yeah. And I honestly kind of want to spend more time in that space right now, but we should also probably move over to the other film we're talking about this week. Sure. That said, if you do nothing else, try to find on YouTube or whatever the carcass scene from Mona Lisa Smile. It is a really good examination of the problems of how we conceptualize art history. Mm-hmm. It's kind of something I was talking about during Finding Forrester about how rote memorization does not equal understanding and analysis. Mm-hmm. This is honestly a good companion piece, and it shows the ways in which Finding Forrester kind of fails to critique English, whereas this does not fail to critique art and art history. Mm-hmm. But speaking of critique, let's get into Emperor's Club. <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to summarize this? No, but I will anyway. William Hunter's picturesque life teaching classics at St. Benedict's is thrown into chaos by new student Sedgwick, an unruly prankster. But when Hunter meets with his dad and gets a sense of why he's like that, he changes tactics, develops a rapport with Sedgwick, whose grades improve. Hunter, to foster his potential, fudges some grades so Sedgwick can compete in the final round of the school Mr. Julius Caesar quiz competition. Unfortunately, Sedgwick resorts to cheating, so Hunter asks a question he couldn't know, and... He comes in second. Hunter confronts him, but says reverts to his old ways and coasts by. 25 years later, Hunter resigns when he's passed over for promotion and gets, gets nowhere worth a book he wants to write until recalled by Sedgwick to the class reunion to have a rematch, where Sedgwick cheats again. Castigating him this time in private, Sedgwick says, eh, who cares? No one will care. Except his son overhears them. Hunter watches sadly as this odious man announces his bid for the senatorial race, feeling like a failure. When the other students celebrate him, he decides... Uh, maybe he's not. It goes back to the teaching. The son of the student he screwed over 25 years ago is in his class. This time, maybe he'll get it right. So this movie's interesting. It takes place in two different points in time, unlike most of our films, which are usually just a year at most. Mm-hmm. So we actually start the film off, what is then the modern day, so around 2002. And we start off with uh, Mr. Hunter kind of ruminating on... I am a teacher. Simply that. I taught for 34 years. One day I stopped teaching. Those were the facts of my life's chronicle. The last chapter had been written. My book was closed. And then the film goes back to the 1970s and we see all the events play out. From the beginning of that school year, Sedgwick being brought into the classroom, the Mr. Julius Caesar competition, a little bit of the fallout afterwards. And then they kind of gloss over the other three or four years that he's there until graduation. Structurally, this is not very different from It and It Chapter 2. Yes. I mean, less evil clowns. 
Sadly. I think this movie needed more evil clowns, honestly. <laughs> Although, weird thing. For whatever reason, the narration that Mr. Hunter is providing reminds me a lot of the narration from Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Oh, for sure. I can see it. I don't know if it's the cadence or even maybe a similar voice, but it just... I think it's the music. Owlwolf has this, like, stirring, this is important, we're telling the story of a great man kind of thing. Yeah. I'm not sure what that accent was. Speaking of great men, we have Jesse Eisenberg in this. Yeah, there are some very young actors here playing roles in the 1970s class. Yeah, baby Jesse Eisenberg, baby Paul Dano, baby Emil Hirsch. Paul Dano is probably not as recognizable as the other two, but if you've been a fan of this podcast for long enough, you will remember us talking about Paul Dano when we talked about Cowboys and Aliens. He's the trust fund cowboy character. Yes. He's playing a very different character here, and it's a little jarring. This is long before he longbottomed, so he's just sort of the class nerd. Mm -hmm. In, In a prep school where we focus on the classics class. Yeah. It's also especially weird because Jesse Eisenberg and Emile Hirsch look exactly like they do now and have the exact same mannerisms as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've had a Jesse Eisenberg film that we've talked about in the podcast before, but we have talked about Emile Hirsch via Speed Racer. Yeah. I think Jesse Eisenberg is just on a lot of things we've dodged around unintentionally. Yeah. I'm sure I'll get to Now You See Me eventually. Definitely not BVS. (laughs) No. Gods, no. It's been talked to death. I'm bored of it. I don't care anymore. I also unfortunately don't recognize the actor who plays Deepak, the school's only Indian kid slash only kid of color. The actor who portrays young Deepak doesn't like have a Wikipedia page, so mm. I'm not sure if he's gone on to pursue acting as an adult. Mm, sure. Although 2000's portrayal of Deepak is played by Rahul Khanna, who is a very prominent Indian actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they all, they all have like big famous names in the, in the future. Like one of them is, what's his face? Not Paul Debussy. Um, Patrick Dempsey. Patrick Dempsey. Yeah. There we go. Patrick Dempsey is playing the adult version of Jesse Eisenberg, and <laughs> it is wild. <laughs> Probably still would have been a better Lex Luthor. Possibly. I kind of feel bad for Deepak because he's a character who I thought might have been way more interesting to pursue because he's the only Indian kid in a very like, prestigious prep school. He might be raised by a single mother. We don't see his dad at the scene where all the parents are cheering them on during Julius Caesar. He does extracurricular reading on uh, the Carthaginians and presumably people who are beyond just Greece and Rome. Which is actually how he is able to win the Mr. Julius Caesar competition. Mm-hmm. Because William Hunter walks in on him reading the Carthaginian book and is like, Hamilcar Barca seems like an outstanding commander. Yes, who had the misfortune of being on the losing side. You do realize that Hamilcar Barca is not part of the course reading list. Yes, sir. Very good. And he asks a question about the Carthaginians because he knows that Emil Hirsch won't know it. Mm-hmm. Yay, set up payoff. Good job. But we don't really get any further exploration of him beyond that. Like, is he reading about these outsiders because he is also an outsider and feels some empathy towards them? Does he just really want to, like, know the full picture from all different sides? Is he yeah. just into going over the Alps and elephants? <laughs> Valid. Like, inform his character in terms of, like, his actions. He doesn't act out as part of defiance. He doesn't take unusual courses to victory or anything like that. The only way it really informs his character is, as an adult, he is in academia and he is a college professor. Mm-hmm. Which cool, but that could have come from anything. Exactly. It's really interesting because we haven't had such a prominent character of color in most of the films that we've talked about, with the exception of, like, Finding Forrester. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of all about, uh, we are talking about race in this one. 
And I mean, I'm not saying that I wanted this one to cover race stuff. I don't know if it would have done a good job at it. Um, but Deepak is a much more compelling character than Sedgwick is. Right. I mean, I think Sedgwick is fine as a character. He's interesting enough, but he's, we've seen him before. He's kind of just the bad boy who shakes up the school. And he goes on to, I guess, shake up the governments or whatever. Can we can we talk about how William Hunter is just the worst? Like, makes Dumbledore look like an ethical school administrator. In one of the first scenes of the school year, he chastises Lewis for not walking on the concrete paths and walking across the grass. Yep. It's such a, no, conform move, and it's like the exact opposite of what Keating would do. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the uh, Dead Post Society for Republicans. Yeah, it really is. I figured that was going to be like a, a theme, that like the kids were going to teach him to walk off the path or whatever, but no. My biggest thing is that at the end, he has this opportunity to call out a man with a history of cheating and other unethical things on live television for being a cheat who might be going on to be a U.S. senator, and he doesn't do that. It's like he doesn't realize this golden opportunity he has to change the course of history. Yeah, the only comeuppance that Sedgwick has is, oh no, his son found out he's an asshole. Which, cool, that'll stop him, that'll show him. (laughs) Yeah, and that would have eventually happened anyway. Right. That doesn't save the millions of poor people who he's probably going to screw over with his policies. What I assume corrupt senators do, and most senators, really. And the whole film has this whole thing about, like, how will we be remembered? The The end depends upon the beginning. Legacy, legacy, legacy. But then there's this opportunity to change the course of history and nothing happens. It's so baffling. It It doesn't know its own themes are, despite... Wearing them on its sleeve. Seven times I put down a cheat mark next to, aha, a theme in my notes. I just, uh, I don't like this movie. It's really unfortunate because this film had potential and it just kind of squanders it all. I know it's based off of a short story called The Palace Thief, which I am unfamiliar with. And I understand that sometimes when you are adapting a work, you feel somewhat beholden to it. But if that was the case... I think it would have been much more interesting to move beyond the bounds of the original work and do something interesting. Right. If that's what in the original work, good job, original work. You are also bad. Now there's two of you. <laughs> Shitty kid with powerful parent faces no consequences. Mm-hmm. Which we need much less of in both films and the world. Yes. There are a lot of other problems with William Hunter. He's very obsessed with the classics in that weebish way that a lot of rich people are. Yeah, not quite to a white supremacist extent, but his writings definitely inspire white supremacists. Right. I mean, I'm all for studying the classics and learning history. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. There's a lot of importance to, to like knowing your history so you don't repeat it, and also just history cool. But this is the wrong way to do it because it lionizes a lot of people who were still responsible for atrocities and treating them as inherently valid because they were well-spoken of and spoke Latin. I'd be more okay with it if he was studying more parts of history and we were just kind of focusing on the classics part for the fun of it, but no. Yeah, you can even stick with the classics, but just move beyond the north half of the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do stuff with happening in Egypt, Mesopotamia, Babylon, China. And that might have even been interesting. Again, explore it through Deepak's perspective as someone who comes from a culture that is not built on these particular slices of history. Mm-hmm. It's right there. In the same right there way, you have all these people who are having conversations about Julius Caesar, who was stabbed by his fellows because they felt he had gone too far. And ooh, look. Sedgwick. Right there. After Sedgwick cheating again, 
Hundert confronting him. There's supposed to be a breakfast that Hundert misses. I think partially because Cedric gave him the wrong time, but most of his other students end up like in his bedroom, like celebrating him and thanking him for being their teacher. And they present him with a gift of a baseball bat, which he had used 25 years ago and accidentally broke the window of the uh, headmaster's car. Mm-hmm. And they, they had all signed it. And in my notes, they're all in togas. They have a weapon. Why are they not A2 Bruteing Sedgwick's ass? <laughs> I I think I would have forgiven the movie for a lot if it had gone like full Julie Taymor's Titus at the very end. 95% of just boring white guys being boring and then like 5% ultra violence. Yes, please. Yeah, I want to see Kevin Klein just beat on his former student with a baseball bat. On national television with his children right there. Uh, That's the, uh, the emotional space this film put us in. Good job, Empire's Club. Yeah. There are some good points in, for this film. At one point... Sedgwick gets the entire class to like slam their books all at the same time to startle Mr. Hunter. Then as Sedgwick is taking the final essay quiz to get into the Mr. Julius Caesar competition, he's like running out of time and Hunter slams a book to get him to finally stop. Mm -hmm. It's a nice reversal. There's a great bit where um, Sedgwick is trying to check out a book from the library and all of his notes are failing, so he tries flirting with the librarian. He's like, that is a great hairstyle, is that new? I've had it since 1958. There are moments of fun in here. I think the bits of Sedgwick being a miscreant are the most fun parts, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think I'd be more okay with exploring Sedgwick if they actually like explored more of what was going on with his dad and growing up as the son of a U.S. senator who doesn't have time for him and having very high expectations for his son. I will say that Senator Bell is exactly what I would expect from a senator from West Virginia in 1970s. Mm-hmm. Look, I have this gun that once belonged to Robert E. Lee. Still fires! I think it was Robert E. Lee's coachman, but sure. close enough. Yeah. And the bits of Sedgwick kind of getting all these timid conservative kids to have fun and be more punk was kind of fun. Like, running across the river to the local girls' school and scandalizing the nuns by, by skinny dipping. Or attempting to, anyway. Ladies, what is going on here? Like, I think, honestly, the most interesting conflict in the film, and they don't fucking touch on it after the scene it comes up in, Mr. Hunter goes to see Senator Bell to talk about Sedgwick and what's going on, and he talks about... Sir, it's my job to mold your son's character. And, and the senator's like... Your job is to teach my son. You, sir, will not mold my son. I will mold him. Which is a genuinely interesting question of where the line is of how much teachers should and should not impart ethics beyond just their subject, and who decides when that's okay and where the line is drawn, and what happens if a parent is doing a bad job with their ethics and when does a teacher step in? All fascinating questions. That This film does not engage with it at all and i would have been so here for it if it did if instead of hunter just calling a truce with sedgwick after the whole cheating thing and made a point of no i'm going to make sure that this kid faces consequences for his actions no matter who his father is and that being the conflict that he has with the administration yeah that would have been compelling and interesting and there would have been Again, parallels with Julius Caesar about, like, when you go too far and being stopped by the masses and democracy and shit. But no, Hunter's conflict with the administration is, 
I mean, a little bit of not being able to call Sedgwick out, the headmaster says, to just ignore it when he's like, hey, he's cheating during the competition. Was the implication there that the senator is giving him a lot of money? That's the impression I got, but I don't think... Yeah, I think so. Okay, sure. When that headmaster eventually dies, Hunter is kind of like a shoe-in. He's been assistant headmaster for a while and is a linchpin at the school, but he's passed over for a faculty member who hasn't been there quite as long. In fact, who Hunter helped get him that job. Mm -hmm. But it's also made very clear that Hunter has no real interest in the fundraising and political side of being a headmaster and this other guy does and they're still totally fine with him teaching at the school but he's just so bent out of shape that he doesn't get that headmaster title that he just resigns crotchety old man yells at the sky when the obvious solution is just to restructure things and he can be in charge of teaching and a lot of the more ceremonial things at the school as well as ensuring the student well-being while this other guy is working to maintain the funding for the school and expanding enrollment and things like that. If only he was a professor who had a lot of knowledge about a culture that at one point shifted from having a single ruler to having two rulers and how that worked out for them. Yep. By the same token, at one point, uh, young Sedgwick is... Brutus doesn't agree with their plan? No, I don't agree with their plan. They should kill Mark Antony, too. I mean, Brutus is a pussy. <laughs> they have this conversation about ambition and taking power and who does and doesn't want it. And whether you should want power just for, for power's own sake. And He's ignoring a lot of his own advice. <laughs> yeah, he's ignoring his own advice. He seems to have like pivoted at some point between then and now for... No reason that I can discern. At least no reason that the film gives us. Because it just kind of skips through 25 years. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and he just like wifes that lady who ran away off screen. Yeah, we haven't even brought up... She's so superfluous and I feel bad for saying that, but she's the only woman in the cast and she does not matter. The sexiest lamp. It's very clear from Hunter's and Elizabeth's interactions that there's something there, but she's married to somebody else and so they can't really pursue it. Her husband gets a job in England and leaves. And then in the 25-year gap, oh yeah, her marriage failed and she came back and now we're married. None of the scenes in which she is in add anything to the plot. It's really, really frustrating to just have this nothing character be the only woman. Mm -hmm. I wrote in my notes, she's a love interest because she's the only woman in the plot. But also I wonder if she was added in specifically because they realized that William Hunter didn't really have a love interest and there were, I guess possible queer readings of him uh even Sedgwick calls him out on that at one point having all the kids dress in togas right which thanks movie fuck you but she didn't need to be such a minor character she didn't need to be so unthere. and you could have explored a lot of the themes by having them have conversations about them have them specifically move Hunter's internal monologue to external monologue with her or ex external dialogue sorry don't, yeah. don't just talk at women about your <laughs> your sad professor thoughts Another more minor quibble I have with the togas in this film. When they are doing the Julius Caesar competition, when they're adults, there's this huge banquet and the three competitors have tuxes on and then togas over them. And it looks so bad. I'm like, you're adults. Go old school or not at all. Nothing but the toga. Right? I will admit there's a tiny part of me that felt a fluttering of joy because when I was in school, we also had a wear togas and, and debate things in public thing as part of our civics class, which was kind of fun. I understand how that can be a very enjoyable role play thing for your students to, to do, have them explore different 
cultures and norms and philosophical concepts in a very literal way. It just bothers me that I spent so much time focusing on that and not going beyond that. And yeah, it did look very silly, which is a shame because you can have really cool combinations of togas and like tux type suits. I think I saw some stuff like that in the Hunger Games and it looked really cool. Mm. Also, another thing that really frustrates me is there aren't ever any consequences for Mr. Hunter pushing Martin out of the competition. Nope. Eventually admits it to him 25 years later and Martin's just like, Okay. Sorry, Martin. No, that's, that's okay. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. And it's just a non-issue. He still sends his kid to the school. I mean, I'm fine with that. I just wish that there was some sort of more emotional resolution than, oh, I admitted the thing I did and, oh, you don't care. Right. He faces no consequences for, I guess, enabling an evil senator yeah. to happen. Especially since Martin, his father, won the Julius Caesar competition when he was a boy in school. And that was a big deal to Martin. And he never got the chance to do that. Right. Poor Martin. This kid who never really wanted to be dragged into all this nonsense anyway and just wanted to do his best. Mm-hmm. It does lead to a tiny mode of progressiveness that I like in the film. In the past part of the narrative, it's an all-boys school, overwhelmingly white, but in the present we have a much more diverse co-ed class. And your name, sir? Alec Matthews. And yours, miss? Catherine Scott. And your name? Tawana Carver. And yours, sir? Stephen Wong. Yay, progress is happening, even if William Hunter has not noticed. There's that small little, like, things have changed for the better at this school. I really appreciate that. But Hunter wasn't there to do it, which means we can only assume it was the guy who got... The, <laughs> the guy who became headmaster, who obviously did a better job than Hunter probably oh would have. Oh my god, you're right! <laughs> Is this a villain protagonist movie? I guess. <laughs> Ugh. He's the most boring villain ever. <sighs> Give me Calendar Man. <laughs> I love that you are such a calendar man stand in the way that I'm such a, a man bat stand. <laughs> I just love how fucking ridiculous calendar man is as a concept. <laughs> he only commits crimes that are related to like special calendar names. Ah, <laughs> uh, bless. Also, his name is Julian Day. <laughs> I love comics. I love comics so much. But speaking of comics, and therefore of nerds, who is the nerdiest character in these two movies, and who is the most jock, the most goth, and the most prep? Let's see. I think most goth, we're going to have to go with Giselle. I could say Giselle or Connie. Yeah. I thought Connie was would have been more goth if she knew that black clothes existed. Uh, also, like before she got a boyfriend. Yeah, that's true. Where Giselle seems definitely more... Like, it should be the 80s, and she's in a nightclub... Doing drugs and being sad, but also right. <laughs> yeah. That's the energy she gets off somehow. I will allow Giselle to outstrip her. <laughs> Giselle to outpace her. There we go. Yes. I think Beth has got to be most prep. Yo, yeah. Distinctly. Mm-hmm. I mean, her house is kind of exactly what you would imagine when you think rich prep school girl. Betty is distinctly the most prep character in either of these films. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll put Sedgwick as most jock. He definitely has, like, the jock energy, especially his disinterest with academia. Mm -hmm. Even after all of the pushing from Hundert, he, Mm -hmm. like, he still cheats in the competition, even though he knew the information he got there. Mm -hmm. He just decided to because why not, I guess. 
Why, we never, why doesn't the guy get, get explored? Sorry, no. We're, yeah. we're in the finals. He's not super sporty. I mean, I guess he is like pitching during the baseball game. But yeah. there's honestly not a good example of a jock in this film. Cedric is probably the closest we get. Mona Lisa's smile is much more liberal, liberal arts than, I guess, sport arts. Yeah. We do see a scene of the women rowing, but it... Oh, there's also the synchronized swimming. Yeah. But that all seems to be more like being part of the social set than intentions towards uh, athletic excellence. Yeah. As far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who is most nerd? I would put down Deepak as a contender. I definitely think Deepak is the most nerd. He is going above and beyond what's required of him in class. When he's reading Carthaginians, Mr. Andrew's like, you know that's not on the syllabus, right? He's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and then he goes into academia, which is a very nerdy thing to do. That's true. And he wins a Julius Caesar trivia competition not once but twice. Yes. Most nerd. Uh, and with that, we have that out of the way. And I think it's pretty obvious that Mona Lisa's smile is better than Emperor's Club. By a wide margin. I loved Mona Lisa's smile. Like I said, I want to get more into the art side of things when we next talk about it. I'm going to try not to rant too much since I was a <laughs> art student and this is my shit. <laughs> we didn't even actually get into the like meaning of the title, which is pretty interesting. And they do a good job exploring, but we'll have to do that next time. Yeah. Uh, speaking of next time, what's up next week? Next week, we're definitely in for a change of pace. We have Madeline and Toy Soldiers. Not small soldiers, <laughs> Toy Soldiers. Oh boy. And we get more nuns, at least. <laughs> we do get more nuns. <laughs> we also are going to be dealing with terrorists. <laughs> How unusual. <laughs> I have no idea what to expect with small soldiers. Toy Soldiers. <laughs> I have no idea what to expect with dog soldiers. <laughs> You'll join us next week for that, whatever it winds up being. Yeah. I do know Sean Austin's in it. That's good. I do love Sean Austin. Yeah, he's a great actor. So hopefully it's at least enjoyable. Mm -hmm. But if you want to catch that episode as soon as it goes live, be sure to follow us on your podcasting application of choice. And also Facebook and Twitter. Until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.